Just really quick before we start the episode, I wanted to remind you that to pass along the gift of knowledge, I'm giving away free books all year long. Each month, one winner will be randomly drawn for a three-book gift pack featuring one copy of the book of the month from the new book club, one copy of a book from a recent podcast guest, and one signed and personalized copy of my book, The Salesperson Paradox. You can enter to win each month at douglasvigliotti.com backslash free books. That's douglasvigliotti.com backslash free books. Who's ready to make some progress today? My name is Doug Vigliotti and welcome to It's Not What It Seems. What's up, everyone? Thank you for tuning in today. This is the second episode for the new book club in 2019. But if this is your first time hearing about the book club, here's what you need to know. These new book club episodes will be a conversation about the book of the month between my oldest brother, Darren, and I. Darren's always been a big reader, but wanted to incorporate more nonfiction reading into his life. And since that's pretty much all I read, it seems like a great foundation for a book club. So we started one. The rules for him and I are simple. Select one nonfiction book a month. Write down what we liked, quotes, excerpts, questions, and of course, anything that ended up being not what it seems. Don't talk to each other about the book at all until we get together and chat about the book. This is what was recorded and what you'll hear today. There's nothing formal you have to do. You could tune in, not tune in, read, not read, whatever you want. The option is all yours. Each episode will air on the last Sunday of every month, which means March 31st for the next one. And the new book for March will be announced at the end of this conversation and on my upcoming reading list at the end of the month. There will be a link in the show notes with more info on this book club. Today's discussion will be about the book of the month for February 2019, Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think by Hans Rosling. Ola Rosling, and Anna Rosling Ronland. Hans was a medical doctor, professor of international health, and renowned public educator. His TED Talks have been viewed more than 35 million times, and he was listed as Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. He died in 2017, devoting his final years to writing this book along with his collaborators, Ola and Anna. They are both co-founders of the Gapminder Foundation and international award winners for their work. Here's a little bit more about factfulness. When asked simple questions about global trends, what percentage of the world's population lives in poverty? why the world's population is increasing, how many girls finish school. We systematically get the answers wrong. So wrong that a chimpanzee choosing answers at a random will consistently outguess teachers, journalists, Nobel laureates, and investment bankers. In factfulness, Hans, Ola, and Anna offers a radical new explanation of why this happens. They reveal the 10 instincts that distort our perspective from our tendency to divide the world into two camps, usually some version of us and them, to the way we consume media where fear rules, to how we perceive progress, believing that most things are getting worse. 
Our problem is that we don't know what we don't know, and even our guesses are informed by unconscious and predictable biases. It turns out that the world, for all of its imperfections, is in much better state than we might think. That doesn't mean there aren't real concerns, but when we worry about everything all the time, instead of embracing a worldview based on facts, we lose our ability to focus on the things that threaten us the most. Inspiring and revelatory, filled with lively anecdotes and moving stories, Factfulness is an urgent and essential book that will change the way you see the world and empower you to respond to the crises and opportunities of the future. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode where Darren and I do our best to synthesize the biggest takeaways and our lasting impressions of Factfulness. Enjoy today's conversation. Full disclaimer, Darren and I completely understand we only see the world through our perspectives. And just like any one perspective, it's affected by our experiences, environment, biases, luck, and a plethora of other factors. This means we'll often use anecdotal examples from our own lives. We only know what we know, and even that is under scrutiny. Neither of us are or claim to be subject matter experts in many of the topics we will be discussing. After all, This is exactly why we are reading these books. It's important to remember this is nothing more or nothing less than a conversation between two brothers about a book they both read. Darren Vigliotti, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Doug. I'm happy (laughs) to be here again. Uh, I can't believe it's already been a month. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, Yeah, no, I've I've been, uh, this has been marked on, on my calendar as well. So we're here to talk about factfulness today yep. by Hans Rosling. Ten reasons we are wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. Yeah, so it's uh, a little different than the one that we read previously, but still looking at the global perspective, which is a macro idea. And, you know, it's, it's not tackling the one-on-one aspect of how you, you know, to, to improve your life or to, to do anything of, of that nature. So it still has that that global feel to it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But there's, you know, I I think obviously it's a completely different book, but I think one of the the cool things about this book is it's very graph and chart heavy. Yeah. So a lot of visuals, a lot of visuals, a lot of visuals. So for anybody who likes books with pictures. Yes, exactly. And I thought when I first opened this book, you know, one of the coolest things about the actual book was I, I read the back matter and as did I excellent as per our conversation <laughs> excellent uh, last time excellent um, this is like his life's work like he was literally wrote this Hans Rosling wrote it with Ola Rosling and Anna Rosling Roland or you know Ronland Ronland however you pronounce the last name I'm sorry on his deathbed I mean he he died in 2017 and he didn't he never wrote this book he's you know has a Ted, you know, he's 35 million views on his TED Talks and he's lectured around the world. And this is like basically his life's work. And they, he wrote this book on his deathbed, which I thought was like super, super cool. You know, it's like, I want this to be my last message out to the world. Right. Uh, no, I mean, it doesn't come straight out and say it, but it says all that other stuff about how, you know, he wrote it on his deathbed and all that. But so in deep inside, you know, you, you're thinking to yourself like, this is it. This is what this guy wants to the world to know. Like the, he he wants this to be his lasting impression. And I just thought that was like 
the coolest thing. I mean, that was my initial thought as I, as I, uh, read through, what was your initial thought as you opened the book? Well, just looking, you know, at the cover of the book and I know you can't see it if you're listening to this, but you know, right at the top of the book, essentially, well, like, I'm hoping everyone read it. Just, yeah, that's true. But I mean, for anyone who might not have even read the book yet, uh, you know, the word fact, you know, right at the top of the book, kind of like, you know, shoots you right in the, uh, in the face there. Um, and you know, I spent a lot of time immediately just looking at the chart on the inside front cover of the book. You know, it's like this really beautiful looking chart. It's got all these like lovely, you know, colored circles and, you know, it's broken up into levels, level one, two, three. It's got, you know, lifespan versus income and, you know, every country on the, on the planet. And, you know, so I spent some time looking at that and I didn't really know who Hans Rosling was before I read this book. Um, and now since I finished it, I've watched a couple of his TED Talks. So I've seen some of the videos where they're using these charts. And it's a really kind of ingenious way to visualize data in, in, in what's a, an attractive and kind of beautiful presentation that really is instructive for showing us like, hey, you know, the the world is not what you think, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, no. to, I didn't get to say that last time, so I wanted to make sure I got that. Well, in. It, well, you know, it's I, I wasn't going to start with this, but since you went there, since you went there, one of my favorite quotes from the actual book is comes at the very end. It's the last thing that he says, and the last thing that he says is, "When we have a fact-based worldview, we can see that the world is not as bad as it seems, and we can see." What we have to do to keep making it better. I got that one too. It's just great, right? <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes the best way to start is to look at the end of something, look right? Look at the end, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, no, no. It's, it, it's, he's basically saying the world isn't what it seems. And we need to start with a fact-based worldview to uh, better understand how we're going to be able to make decisions about the world. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, you've read a ton of what is probably you know, kind of referred to in almost a negative context is like the self-help style of, yeah, of yeah, genre, totally. right? And I write in that genre. You write in that genre. <laughs> but is there, is there ever any one of these books that doesn't start with the concept of like, we need an honest assessment of where we are? Like as realistic as we can possibly portray it. You know, it's like you have to admit whatever it is you need to admit about yourself or about your situation or like there, there can be no progress without understanding where we are now and where we've, how we got to be in that place. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally, I mean that, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're spot on. And I mean, isn't that, that what, that's essentially what he's doing here. Um, and essentially the, the layout, the structure it is very much that, you know, it's impossible to make decisions about the future or about any situation or institution or, organization or anything without understanding the actual facts of the situation, right? And, uh, you know, I think I mentioned this before we started was, you know, I, I have experience with this in, the, in consulting, you know, with different businesses in, in the sales genre, obviously. But when you go in, the first thing that you have to be able to do is analyze what's happening. And you have to spend probably the most amount of your time doing that because if you can't accurately assess what's happening in the given situation, it's virtually impossible. It renders everything else that you're going to suggest as advice or as direction useless because it's based on a false pretense. Tying it back to this book, this book is about 
how could we give everybody in this you know world a proper starting point for what the world actually is not the stuff that they tell you on the news not the stuff that they tell you you know you hear john the neighbor talk about the actual facts and trends of where we were and now where we are today yeah yeah and I, and i think that really what he is doing is saying not only do we need to have a fact-based worldview, right? But here are like some of the major reasons why we don't, and here's what we do about it. Yeah. You know, and that that's really where his interest lies. His interest in, lies in pointing out here are the gaps in our thinking, right? And this is where we're yeah. g- getting things wrong, and this is where why we're getting these things wrong. And here's some ways to to combat that because we need to be aware of the things that are affecting our ability to have an accurate portrayal of the world. Yeah, no, I would, I would totally agree with that assessment. You know, so it's funny. You mentioned the word gap. I think this is probably the first time that I'm saying this publicly, but uh, I have a book that's coming out with the same name, The Gap, right? And so one of the funniest things that when we opened this book was the overlap of, I don't want to say content, but overlap of macro concepts that the author is trying to convey with the book that that I have coming out in May. So, you know, it was, it was like a smack in the face. It was very hard not to, I'm pretty, you've read the book. So it was, I'm pretty sure, you know, I don't want to make this about my book, obviously. um, But it was just something that was very glaring and affecting my worldview as I read along with this book. Yeah. That's funny. It was funny for me to see that <laughs> in the, right in the, uh, you know, the second chapter there. But I think, you know, the thing is, the book is really about, it's about learning and it's about helping you to, to learn, right? Yeah. And, and he provides a nice model in this book for how to think more clearly about the world. And, and I think that's what you're trying to do as yeah. well. I mean, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with you. I don't know that we're always... Super clear, but, uh, you know. Sometimes we're cryptic. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's what it's all about, learning, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, in the book, obviously, he lays out the, the instincts, right? So, they're the, the, the 10 instincts that we have about the world. And then he essentially disproves them or tries to disprove them. I mean, there, you know, as we talked about before, there's a dual nature to, to a few of them where there's, some things are useful, like all tools have a, a positive and a negative, but there's certainly statements that people commonly make about the world, <laughs> and he's trying to actively disprove them. So yeah, because they're wrong, because they're wrong, right? <laughs> and he's very he's very clear about that. And and I think that the overarching concept you started to articulate a little bit with the opening about the chart really revolves around the income gap that is assumed by a lot of people, which he calls the gap instinct. Which, by the way, is is not the same. It's not def- your the gap. <laughs> not, it's not my definition of the gap. But he's saying that's the gap instinct yeah. of people dividing the world into rich versus poor, developed versus developing, yeah. rest versus west, us versus them. Yep. And taking and this was a really revolutionary idea, and I think that's why this idea is the one that people are really, really interested in of looking at the world in these four levels, which breaks it up even further, right? It's not putting the world in a bigger category and it's looking at it in four different levels of level one, level two, level three, level four, and saying the truly poor, the truly poor 
extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is on level one. Yes. That which accounts for about a billion people. Yeah. The rest of the world, six billion people, don't live in extreme poverty. That doesn't mean that two and three aren't different than four. Right. It just means that the world doesn't have a us versus them, rich versus poor. And then he continues to tie this back throughout the book. I mean, what, what's your take on, the, on, on that whole Yeah, I mean, for me, that was probably the most enlightening part of the book for me in terms of actual fact-based knowledge that I just didn't know. I mean, I would have definitely, I've definitely referred to the developed world versus the developing world, you know, the, the yeah. rich versus the poor. I, I, I've certainly perceived that gap to exist in my mind. Uh, I think it's really interesting though, like how he even got to that, you know, where he, he loves to use these. And, and, you know, one of the things about Rosling is in his personal experience presenting all over the world to like, you know, seemingly like every organization that ever exists, you know, like the, you know, this group of doctors, this group of businessmen, you know, if, if there's a group that gathers together, you know, it seems like Rosling was there presenting to them at some point and asking them what he called his fact-based questions. And almost always people tend to answer these fact-based questions wrong and not just wrong, but in a direction that is negative. So, you know, if you're answering a question yeah. with three choices, you know, and you're randomly picking, you know, you got a 33% chance of getting any one answer right. But what he's saying is not only do people get the answers wrong, but when you get them wrong, you would expect, since, since there's two wrong answers, right, for each question, you would expect the wrong answers to be evenly distributed amongst the two wrong answers. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And... That's not what actually happens. So he says, not only do people not know these fact-based questions about the world. So when you ask them, you know, like what's happened to poverty over the last, you know, 80 years. And, and the answer to that question is poverty has been halved. They go in reverse. People, not only do they get it wrong, they get it wrong in the total reverse direction. So he's saying, not only do we have, do we not know the answer, we have a bias in the negative direction. We, we have this overdramatic instinct that everything is really bad and getting worse. And so really what he wants to do is say, not only are things not bad and getting worse, they're actually way better and getting better all the time. And they, and yes, there might still be things that are bad. He's, he in no way is ever saying that things are rosy for everybody right now. He, he's very clear to, to make that comment many times, but he is saying that like, you know, and I think you were going there a minute ago, like things can be bad and better. And that is in fact the case where we find ourselves. Things are a yeah. lot better and in many ways still getting better. And yeah, while, while things are bad, you know, it's, it's better than it's ever been essentially. Right? Yeah, no. And I, I think that's like one of my favorite articulations that he has from the book is things can be better and bad at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I don't want to cloud our conversation and say that things are bad right now on the macro because I don't believe that they are. Um, and I think he does a pretty good job of articulating that. But in the micro sense, I think it's important to remember things can be better and bad at the same time because there's not so much that we're going to be able to do on a micro level or on a macro level as an individual to address a lot of the yeah, like global inequality. Exactly. Like, like you, there's those things. Those are complex. Those are very complex. They're going to take collaboration, global collaboration. But in the micro, it's really important to remember that things could be bad and better at the same time. It's like, if I'm $100,000 in debt, 
if I pay off ten thousand dollars, it's still it's better than a hundred thousand, but it's still bad. Right. right. <laughs> you know. So you know that. You know, not to you know, there's there's something that really hit home with me with the four level assessment of income and. So can we just like define that a little more clearly? Sure. Um, do you want to? Sure. What, just, what, what exactly? Well, so essentially what he's saying is that, you know, when we look at the income levels of, of the people of the world, right? Yep. He's, he's saying instead of dividing, instead of having this mental model where we separate into rich versus poor, we've got four levels of income, right? You've got basically level one or people, you know, existing on $2 a day or less, right? And then level two where it's, you know, two to $8 a day. And then level three where it's eight to $64 a day. And then level four, which is where you and I both exist. And probably most of the people that will listen to this podcast are $64 a day and above. And he's basically saying that like, we might not think that there's a big difference between $2 a day and $4 a day, but actually that's the difference between, you know, extreme poverty and a situation that is significantly better. And so, you know, for us, we need to we need to recognize those distinctions and understand that the world is more nuanced and that all these people exist on a spectrum of wealth, not literally yeah. the people who have stuff and the people who have nothing. Yeah, that was great. I'm, I'm happy that you, you said that there because that was a great way to tie in what we're trying to say in, in, a, in a more vivid manner. And, and I think he even increases that in the book by showing you pictures. Yes. So he'll say level one, and he'll show you what it's like for someone to brush their teeth on level one, two, three, and four. Yeah. Level one, they're using their fingers. Or a stick. Or, or a stick. Yeah. Level two, everybody in the house is sharing the same. Yeah, old toothbrush. The old toothbrush they've had for two yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, three year, four year, five year, whatever yeah. it is. Finally, on level three, everyone gets their own toothbrush. Right. And then on level four, we have the electric toothbrush. What I found to be the most fascinating with that whole levels assessment is he makes it very, very clear. And this is the thing that fascinates me with pretty much everything all the time is that it's so hard for people on level four to understand what it's like for people on level three, level two, and level one. Now, I'm not saying that I think about that all the time, but I think about perspective mm -hmm. all the time, like all the time, like I think it's super hard to know what it's like to be in Darren Vigliotti's shoes, never mind thinking about what it's like to be in level three, level two, or level one. So it's just easier for people to put things into bigger categories and say, rich versus poor, right? Even though it's not accurately correct. So I think the big point here is, for me anyway, was we have to try to get out of our own shoes and get out of our own perspective and understand that we're seeing the world from our perspective. We're seeing the world from level four. And one of the hardest things to do for anyone on level four is to understand that there's a three, two, and one. Yes. This was, this was amazing to me because one of the reasons why he says is that, yeah, that's a pretty correct worldview actually, if it's 1965, <laughs> but it's not 1965, it's 2018. <laughs> and, and he goes on to say that, People tend to have a very, very outdated worldview. And then he specifically says that it's outdated generally to the point when their teachers left school. So if you think about that, that means that teachers, the people who educate you, right, primarily, if you've gone through public schools in, in, in any of these, you know, level four countries, they learned some stuff when they were in school, you know, however many years ago. <laughs> yeah. 
then systematically failed to update their knowledge in any way about the world, and then imparted that knowledge to you. And therefore, when you learned it 30 years later, your knowledge is just 30 years out of date. And, it, and like, now just put this back in time as far as you want to go. It's essentially, we're learning from people who have an outdated worldview by, you know, X amount of years, and nobody understands the world as it actually is today, because we are not out there actively trying to update our, our, knowledge, our knowledge to yeah. today's world. And so we have this picture in our mind that is not only like wrong, right? It's also aligned to a time that existed at some point in the past. Yeah. Right? Which is amazing to me as an educator. Yeah, no, it, it totally. And you know, he even, he articulates that so well in, in a point where he compares uh, Afghanistan now versus Sweden in 1800. So he's basically what he says is Afghanistan is a level one country. So they're living in extreme poverty. Today. Today. Yeah. Mainly and, due to war. war exactly. Yeah. Right. So Sweden in 1800 was a level one country. Yet, fast forward to today, Afghans live up to 30 years longer than anyone that was in Sweden in 1800. Right. On average. On average. Right. Showing that basically this is, this is what the value of being able to break these things into nuanced categories. Yeah. And not just being able to break it into nuanced categories, but understanding that we are progressing. Like there's no way, other way to look at that. That level one countries are still are living on average 30 years longer, even though they're level one countries. Yeah. You know, Compared to countries that were in the same thing 200 years ago or 150 years ago. Right. So he, he quotes, uh, quote, uh, the misconception that the world is getting worse is very difficult to maintain when we put the present in historical context. You know, and it's hard to do when we're living our day to day, but it, it's, it's really important to be able to do that and look back and say, you know, hey, this is where we were. This is where we are now. Things are might still be bad in some ways, but they're definitely better. You know? <laughs> um, you know, living on average to seventy is definitely better than on average, you know, losing half of your children in the first year of their life, and your average, you know, life expectancy when you're born is somewhere in you know the mid thirties, right? Yeah, and, and so he even goes as far as saying that, and, and kind of what you were talking about at the beginning there was, look, we have a negativity instinct. Where we're not just thinking that the world is, we don't even, let alone thinking the world is getting better. We think the world is getting worse. Yeah. People think the world is getting worse. Right. So, you know, and don't go any further than just looking at our own country. Right. Who wants to go back to 1950 and 1960. Why would you want to go back to 1950 and 1960, 1970? Why would you want to go back to those years when things have been steadily progressing since, right? But like... Look, I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm going off the deep end, but like I'm, I'm animated inside because I see this, you know, vividly just in your own backyard or in your own, you know, at work or at, you know, it's like things weren't better. We right. are living in the best possible time in human history right now. Right. So whatever you're going to do, want to do, there's no better time to do that thing than right now and everything. And, and that doesn't mean that there's not problems that we have and there's not, I mean, there's not problems that we face, but it doesn't mean that we should go back to how things were in 1960 or 1970. And he even goes as far as saying this, and it was the one of my favorite quotes of the book, warning, 
your memories are not what they seem or your memories are not, you know, I don't have the quote written down, but it's just, we have this like thing of, you know, we, we want to, we want to pretend like the world is getting worse. And it's just, it really is a frustrating thing. And I mean, the news is what really, really does that. And he talks about that. I like that, that concept that, you know, he says, and I'm, I'm right at the end here, beware of rosy pasts. People often glorify their earliest experiences and nations often glorify their histories. I mean, the idea that we look back and we essentially forget everything that was bad and remember everything that was good and everything that's wrapped up in that. And we just get stuck in this idea that if we could only go back to this time, or we could only go back to that time, or if we could only go back to pre-industrial, you know, agrarian societies. And, and, you know, what he's points out is like, well, if you go look at like, you know, the grave sites of pre-industrial agrarian societies, you know, the murder rate was, you know, 10% or whatever it was. And, and a lot of those people who were murdered were children. And it's like, we don't talk about any of this stuff, but like, these were the realities that people dealt with back in those rosy times when there was no coal pollution or there was no, you know, none of the kinds of modern stresses that we had to worry about. And the, the idea is not to say that there aren't problems now. And I, I think we've, we're kind of belaboring this particular point, but I think it's worth there belaboring. Are, there are problems now and you are going to experience problems in your life and you're going to be frustrated and you're going to suffer and you're going to be stressed. But that doesn't mean that things aren't better than they used to be. Yeah. And, you know, he really wants to show people this is the reality of the world and, and, and give them some tools. So why don't we go through some of these actual instincts instincts that he's, sure. he's talking let's, about? Let's I mean, it. we've talked a lot right now about the gap instinct, which is this idea that we, we create groups and then we pretend there's a large space in between them. And really what we find when we look at the numbers is there's really a lot of overlap. Yeah. There's I mean, not a big space. And just to sum it up, I mean... They're instincts. So instinct meaning we have instincts as people, uh, as a society with specific things. And so the gap instinct, people assume that the world is divided into two, rich versus poor. His solution is putting it into four buckets, right. which I don't want to belabor again. Right. We've already the negativity instinct, which we already started to belabor on, people <laughs> think the world is getting worse. That's just false. It's just wrong. It's just not right. Like there's nothing that is like make America great again or whatever. Like there's no again. Like like it, 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 it's great now and it's never been better. So like let's forget about the world getting worse thing. It, it's just not it's just not true. And like so that's the, the second one. The third one that we get into and then we I don't think we talked about this yet is the straight line instinct which is people think that the world is just increasing, increasing, and increasing. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a hard one to talk about because it really is somewhat of a mathematical concept. And like, he's really talking about like graphs and and like only getting partial parts of data sets and extrapolating those into the future or into the past without having enough of the data to really see like, is this a straight line increase? Is this a part of a curve where I'm seeing the increase, but it's going to you know, level off, you know, um, I think of the, the world population growth concept where, you know, forever you'd, you'd see graphs where, you know, industrialization happens and, and like all of a sudden, you know, the, the graph just shoots up, you know, it's exponential growth and, you know, it's the time to add a billion people to the population keeps, 
reducing and reducing and reducing. But now, if you actually look at that, what you've seen is we're actually already past the point of the truly explosive growth and the the rate is slowing. So like you can already see that the graph of world population growth is the slope is decreasing, the the line is getting less steep and it's going to get to a point where it's actually going to plateau. But if you're only looking at like the period of time from like 1900 to like 1980, well, it looks like it's going to go up to 100 billion people, you know, and and that's just not... Yeah, the reality of the situation. So the way I always look at this this concept is, are you looking at the entire picture? Are you looking at something anecdotally or are you looking at points plotted over an extended period of time? Because what that does and what he even says in the book is it shows you more of a curve, not a straight line. Mm-hmm. And so to understand a trend, you have to see the curve, not in the micro, a straight line, right? And so what you were saying is we're, we're going through what's known as a fill-up effect right now. So we have this idea in our minds that the world is just increasing, increasing, increasing in population. But the fill-up effect is what that's saying is there's less people, there's less babies being born today than there was previously. Right. Birth rates are declining. Birth rates are declining. Because as wealth and education and everything that comes with it increases, birth rates decline. That's well, look the correlation. At me. I'm, uh, you know, look at me. I'm in my early 30s, right? And I, I don't even have a baby in sight. Like, like it's not even a thought on my mind right now. And I, I, but what I'm saying is that's what's happening all over the well, place. Well, you also can't have a baby. <laughs> nah, you know what I mean? I mean, by myself, yeah. Yes. So good. But no, so, so birth rates are decreasing. And so what, what has happened is, is the spike in babies being born has already occurred. Right. So we're going through a fill-up effect of there's going to be more adults in the world over the next three to four decades. And once we get to 2075, it's going to start to level off at about 11 to 12 million yeah. people. And it's going to stabilize because there's not as many babies being born. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't look deep enough into the data. Yeah. And you just assume that, oh, yeah, every year the population keeps going up and going yeah. up and yeah. going up and going up. Yeah. And, so, well, and it does go up. It's just that the rate that it's going up is decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. And it's like counterintuitive, right? And that's like the whole concept of his book is that so many things are counterintuitive, but the idea is the quicker we can eliminate extreme poverty, the faster that uh, basically we get to that plateau. Yeah. Because the people who have the most children are the people who are in a situation where the children are most likely to die. And they don't have access to things like birth control and they don't have access to education for women. And, you know, they don't have good ways to guarantee basic human rights and and things like that. And so what happens is, you know, essentially these people are existing like in a time where we were all existing 200 years ago, where you have a lot of babies and a lot of them are going to die. And that's just the way it goes, you know, and so we got to have a lot. And now what you're saying is that what's happened and what's been unique about the last hundred years is that it's probably going to be the only time in history where there was this unique kind of intersection of people still having lots of babies with us getting way better at keeping those babies alive. Yeah. And so like now with declining birth rates, those two things aren't going to happen and better medicine, that way again. And better medicine. Yeah. Keeping people alive longer. Right. You know, because they're projecting for as... 
as that those years move on and as decades right. move on, that life expectancy is going to go up because yeah. of advancements in yeah. the healthcare industry. Well, and and so the adults although, are staying alive. Although, although that that doesn't increase the the major increase in in like lifespan average is essentially because you don't have all these zeros and ones getting averaged in because you don't have you know so like when people say. You know, this is a. This can lead us into like you know this, yeah. this idea with numbers where uh, you know the, the size instinct. Have the, have the size instinct, but you know the idea that like well the lifespan increased from thirty to seventy or whatever, and you know you get the idea that like everyone who was born you know died in their thirties, and it's like well no that's an average, and if many of the children being born are dying before they're one year old or before they're five years old, which was the case, then your average life expectancy when you're born goes down. But if you made it past, you know, childhood, (laughs) you were going to, you could live to 60 or 70 years old, provided you didn't get, you know, like a bacterial infection that killed you or something like that. But, you know, it wasn't like people just died in their thirties, you know, healthy adults just dropping dead. It's, and, and that's in itself is a misconception. I, one of the, the things that I wrote this one down because I really wanted to talk about this because I loved this idea. Of, so it's so funny. We're like the straight line instinct isn't really something that, that interesting to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I know. We're, yeah, we're so <laughs> animated. Yeah we, yeah, we go off on it about for about 10 minutes here. <laughs> I just love this idea of how and this is going to the size instinct, I, I believe, oh, yeah, yeah, where, yeah. where like how misleading numbers can be. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, can you believe that, uh, you know, 4.2 million children died in 2016? And I, I don't mean to be callous sounding about this. And, you know, by itself, you know, like 4.2 million child deaths before the age of one, you know, terrible. It's terrible. Horrible. Right. And then. It's bad. It, yeah. It's really bad. But then, what is it better? But is it better? And then, when you compare, so that's 2016. When you compare that to 1950, when it was 14.4 million children dying before their first birthday. All right, so now we have a reduction from 14.4 million to 4.4 million. Still bad, but definitely better, right? Then, when you actually look at the number of births and you say, okay, 14.4 million dead before their first birthday out of 97 million births in 1950 for a rate of 15%, right? That means out of every 100 babies born in 1950, 15 of them on average are going to die before their first birthday. And in 2016, it's 4.2 million out of 141 million or 3%. So over that 68-year period, the chances that you are going to survive, right, past your first birthday have increased from 85% to 97%, right? So we have this amazing 12% reduction in mortality rate. And and, and that is like amazing. amazingly better. No, no, right? no to- totally. I mean, I, th- I think that's amazing. I think that sums it up. Well, and when you see a number in like a-, a well, a- well, what he says is you have to look at, he's like, don't look at amounts, look at rates. Right. Stop looking at amounts, look at rates. And right? never look at single numbers. And never look at single numbers. You always have to have points. Context. context. You have to have points of relativity, right? You have to have things to compare things to. So, you know, I thought one of the funniest examples, I don't know if it's, again, to use one of your words, I don't want to sound callous, but an example that he uses in the book that was, you know, the way he writes it, it's comical, is, you know, he's talking about the news. And he's talking about, how one out of every 30 days a woman is killed by her partner in whatever the country. I think it was Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. And once a century. Yeah. 
a bear attacks somebody and it's and it fatally kills them. Yeah. Yet never the news never reports right the one out of 30 women that's getting killed by the partner right but the one time the bear yeah attacks somebody and kills somebody it's on the news right that to me is the definition of distortion we're reporting the extreme not the reality so why did i say it was comical i said it was comical because in the way that he compares it in the notes is bears versus axes, uh, yeah. or you know. So it's like a. It's he's trying to be provocative. He's trying to be provocative about something that's really not funny. Really not that funny, but in actuality, it's the stuff that's actually happening is not being reported. What we're reporting are the extremes, the polar events, and then it's distorting the general public's view on everything. Yeah. What I really like about the way he talks about that stuff, though, particularly the news, and he he brings the media up so much throughout this book that at one point, like I almost was like, is he anti-media? And <laughs> then, you know, he, he's really not. He's just, because he lets them off the hook quite a bit when he says, basically, like, it's not their job to present the world as it is. Yeah. News is news. And then I thought about you and what you said in when we were talking about 21 Lessons and when you said, this is the news, you know? And it's like, this is what we should be talking about. But news is news, not because it presents a, accurate view of reality it's news because it's remarkable because it's extreme because it's dramatic because it's something that doesn't happen all the time and so we're drawn to it it's the plane that crashed yeah you know it's the baby that fell down the well it's the you know yeah. it's it's all of these extreme and crazy examples and then you look at them and then again size instinct you call them to your mind very easily and you way drastically overrepresent how often these things actually appear in the world because you see it. And so, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, teachers, they're a bunch of, you know, all they do is sleep with their students because, you know, every once in a while, what do you see? You see a, you see a news item where it's like this teacher and this student and it's like, okay, so what does that mean in context? You know, that's one person making a choice <laughs> yeah. out of how many, you know, like, so what's the percentage? And, and then what is that compared to 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago when we wouldn't even know that was going on because our surveillance of these bad incidents totally. was actually not as comprehensive as it is now. So not only are we seeing this stuff, right? We're seeing it more because we're better at knowing that it's <laughs> happening than we ever were, which itself is a sign of progress. Yeah, no. Which I, is kind of weird and funny and no, crazy. And, you know, and he just, to, you know, the whole journalist thing. You know, he even says, goes as far as saying, don't demonize journalists. Right. They're, they fall victim to the same instincts that you and I do. Right. Like on an individual level. So no one's impervious to these instincts unless you are actively trying to push back on them. Right. And, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the more glaring instincts that he talks about is the generalization instinct, which we've kind of, it, which kind of ties into everything that we're talking about, you know, which is something that, that I refer to as lumping, but it's literally putting things into larger categories than they deserve to be put into. And, you know, it's to be aware of these extremes on either end of the spectrum and realize that anything inside of any category set could be extreme. So any hundred teachers could have two that are angry drunks. I don't know, <laughs> something random, right? Yeah. Like, like it could be, it could be any, like any group. And that shows up in the news. And or... that shows up in the news. Not the 98 that 
are doing their job the way that they should be or not the 70% that are doing their job the way they should be because then you got to account for the other 10% 10% who have their own, you know, or whatever yeah. the situation yeah. is. But what I'm saying is, is we generalize because it's easier and more comfortable for us to do so. And then that affects how everything else gets portrayed to us and how we see everything else. Yeah. And I think the thing that's important to understand about that, though, is it's, it's not like we're making a conscious decision to no. do that. And I think that's an important point that we need to recognize about all of these these tendencies or these 10 instincts that he's laying out in these this book. This is the stuff that happens automatically. So if we go to like, you know, the Kahneman thinking fast and slow, this is the fast thinking stuff. Yeah. It's the stuff that's happening below our level of consciousness and happening all the time. And we're not even realizing the effect it has on us. And there's really no way for us to escape from it, but we can be aware of it. We can slow down and we can say, hey, what's really going on here? And, and that's what he's saying essentially too, is like, you, it, it, it's, it's small steps. Like this needs to be, you need to start acting slower and you need to start, look, like that's part of the solution part of what he's suggesting yeah. to, to the reader. But I think, you know, for anybody you know, like these aren't these aren't things that like people are choosing to do. I mean, yeah. this is just how it goes. Regarding generalization, he says the necessary and useful instinct to generalize can also distort our worldview. It can make us mistakenly group together things or people or countries that are actually very different. It can make us assume everything or everyone in one category is similar. And maybe most unfortunate of all, it can make us jump to conclusions about a whole category based on a few or even just one unusual example. So, you know, you think about that. It's like, I know one person from, you know, the United States and that one person was a real jerk. Therefore, <laughs> all Americans are jerks. Or, you know, like you can see how easy it is to, to Oh, we do, do it this. geographically all the time. Mass holes. Yeah. New York drivers. Yeah. Like, you the, know. The guy who lives in the town next door <laughs> who's, who's one mile away and if he was one street over would be in my town. But because he lives in this town, he's an idiot like everybody who lives in that town. I mean, like this us versus them generalizing, you know, oh, thinking I, is, is like. I call it lumping. It's like, lumping it's really insane a... though, you know, when you start to dig into like, you know, and I, I feel like the generalization instinct and the gap instinct like really just work in tandem like constantly where it's like we create an us and a them and then we generalize the them and the us. And, and, and it tends to be the them is always like dumber, stupider, you know, like they're making worse decisions. Everything is their fault, you know, whereas we have the best intentions and, you know, it's, it's, it's so insane when you think about it because when you actually meet people like in in real life like we're pretty much you know we're we're, we're really all very very similar in oh, a lot right. of ways right and so to imagine this like these different worlds and then generalizing in this way and then throwing in things like fear and blame and all these other instincts it's it, it it's so easy to see when you read it the way he lays it out like how like truly distorting this can be yeah you know and then it's and then it just breaks it into another whole instinct of the single perspective. So it's not only do we assume that it's us versus them and that we generalize into these large categories, but then us and them, we all have a single solution for what would solve this problem. So people think there's a single solution to solve this problem. And I went on a big rant on, the, on our previous, <laughs> on our previous uh, chat about trade-offs. And this was a glaring example of, look, you have to be able to evaluate trade-offs in your life and the world isn't up to one single point of view, one single perspective. There's no 
one single answer to any question. Like it just doesn't, it, it doesn't exist because when you answer a question somewhere, when you solve a solution somewhere, it inevitably creates another set of random variables and another set of problems that are gonna need solutions. And so what he's saying is we have this instinct that, that I happen to agree with, that people think there's one thing that solves everything. There's one ideology and he goes as far as saying the ideologues get stuck on one idea. We all, you know, this whole, you know, and now I speak from the, the standpoint of America because that's where I live. And, you know, you can't, you can't even turn on the radio or the television, which I don't have cable anymore, without hearing these ideologues about their ideas on the world that are, this is the way it has to be. This is the way that it is. This is the only way that works. It worked in 1950. Why isn't it going to work now? Like, or why wouldn't it work now? It doesn't work like that. Like the world is much more complicated, like on a micro level and a macro level. And what he's saying is, is like, there's, you can't do that. Like it's better to test your ideas slowly, iteration after iteration, see what works, see what doesn't work, mix, blend, you know, it's yeah. that really hit home with me too. that, you know, that, that single perspective instinct, the idea you know, I'll just read the quote that I have. Uh, we find simple ideas very attractive. We enjoy that moment of insight. We enjoy feeling we really know or understand something. And it is easy to take off down a slippery slope from one attention-grabbing simple idea to feeling that this idea beautifully explains or is the beautiful solution for lots of other things. The world becomes simple. <laughs> all problems have a single cause, something we must be completely against. Or all problems have a single solution, something we must always be for. And everything is simple. And there's really just one small issue. We completely misunderstand the world. Yeah. And, you know, like we, we love... To go back to something I think I talked about a lot around the Harari book is we love simple stories. We love taking complexity and reducing it down to simplicity to the point where it's actually not real anymore. It's, you know, we cannot, we have to resist that temptation. We as individuals, a lot of these things that we're talking about are have very complex causes and it's different from case to case and no one single thing is likely to be the right answer all the time for every situation right yeah no and so i mean i think for me that always i always look at the science behind certainty and that occurs just as much as it's why the blame instinct occurs is we want to have the answer we want to be certain we, we innately want to close the cognitive loop as fast as humanly possible. And when we close that cognitive loop, we have a seize and freeze effect that occurs where as soon as we close it, all of a sudden now we freeze on that idea or on that thing and we hold on to it and we grasp it. You know, and that's all based on the, the work that was done by Ari Koglansky and Donna Webster on uh, motivated close-mindedness and all that. But, but it, to me, that the blame instinct and the, you know, the single solution instinct and the simple solution instinct of we want to lump it into something that's much simpler than it actually is, it always, it always comes back to that idea of we're trying to close that cognitive loop as quick as humanly possible. And it's why... We want to blame the, the, the evil businessman or the journalist or the, the lying journalist or the foreigner, right? And that, those are the things that he yeah. says. And then he gives great counterexamples to those in the book. But, you know, it, that's the reason why we're, we're, we're so quick to do all this stuff. And 
it's yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to quote. <laughs> go to a quote. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm gonna read a long I'm, one. I'm, I'm nope. sweating here. <laughs> uh, the blame instinct makes us exaggerate the importance of individuals or of particular groups. This instinct to find a guilty party derails our ability to develop a true, fact-based understanding of the world. It steals our focus as we obsess about someone to blame, then blocks our learning because once we have decided who to punch in the face. We stop looking for explanations <laughs> elsewhere. This undermines our ability to solve the problem or prevent it from happening again because we are stuck with oversimplistic finger pointing, which distracts us from the more complex truth and prevents us from focusing our energy in the right places. So we need to resist blaming any one individual or group of individuals for anything because the problem is that when we identify the bad guy, we are done thinking. And it's almost always more complicated than that. It's almost always about multiple interacting causes, a system. If you really want to change the world, you have to understand how it actually works and forget about punching anyone in the face. And this made me laugh personally because... I would just like to see that guy get punched <laughs> in the face is the solution to, you know, a problem that I've heard proposed many times uh, by, you know, I think we all, I by think, different people. I think we all have, but you have to resist the urge. Yeah. Uh, you could just punch that guy in the face. Everything would be better. Everything. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. So with the blame instinct, he, he, you know, he ties that in and he says, resist finding a scapegoat. Yeah. So the blame instinct, I keep saying, is people blame you know one thing yeah. on why something has happened. Just as some people think that there's one solution for a problem, people blame one thing on why something bad has happened. But what he says is resist finding a scapegoat. Yeah, like you can't look for the one scapegoat right. because there is no one scapegoat to the problem. Instead, what you should be looking at is the system. The system. Yeah, you know that's the whole idea of. The outcome fallacy, which, you know, is there's no single blame. There's no single solution. It's it, just not satisfying. It's just not. But but, but the, that doesn't mean because it's not satisfying doesn't mean that it, it makes it any more right to do. It, exactly. You know? And so it's, you you know, you have to look at the process and value the process and identify the process, the system that's attributed to whatever is happening. Yeah. Not Darren Vigliotti or Doug Vigliotti. I'm just one person and so are you. And so is everybody else. Yeah. The lying journalist, the evil businessman, <laughs> the foreigner, you know, which, you know, are the common exam- things yeah, that we like to blame. We like to blame. Yeah. And how about this one? Well, we're, we're, we're moving along here, actually, because uh, we're getting down the line of these uh, these instincts in the blame instinct. I, I have a short one here. Yeah, go for it. We have an instinct to find someone to blame, but we rarely look in the mirror. <laughs> It's true. Ah, that's a great one though, right? Because it is. It is. You know, you I, know one what? of the things I like to think that I am much better at now than I was at any time in my life. And, and this is how I kind of operate when I'm working with people like in my work, like at school is understanding. And I actually got this idea from the Douglas Stone book. I think it's Douglas Stone, uh, Difficult Conversations, where oh, you know, the, the idea that like, it's not about blame. If you want to move forward, if you want to move forward, it's about understanding everyone's contribution to a situation or a system. And then once I understand my contribution, I understand what I need to do in order to ensure that the situation gets better or not happen again. So the idea is like there are no interactions between human beings where a negative outcome happens that don't in some way involve contributions from all parties. 
Yeah, right? it, of course, um, And so, therefore, it's never 100% that and 0% me. And so if we're not willing to, like, look at me, and when I say me, I would include, like, the group that I belong to or, or whatever the whatever that is that's that you yeah. are a part of. You need to understand, like, what is my contribution, you know? And, and so, like, with this, we just are naturally set up mentally in our brain to Wired. not look inward, you know? And it's always, like, my inclination, you know, um, well, the th- to blame somebody else. Well, you know, it's funny. Immediately, when something bad happens. It's like, oh, something fell down over here. Oh, you know, it's my son's <laughs> fault. Or it's, you know. It's true. You know. I, it's true. I, I mean, I think one of the important things, too, is just because – you know, and I want to just make this clear because just because I talk, you know, talk adamantly about something, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm not subject to the same oh, yeah. thing. Absolutely. Like, you know, I'm subject to the same stuff. It's just I'm actively trying to consciously identify it, right? But it doesn't make it any less right or wrong for me or or more challenging or less challenging. You know, and I, I, I do the same stuff, right? So it's like... I hope I do it a little less, but, but, you know, like, I think that, you know, sometimes people always, you know, because someone is adamantly or passionately talking about something, it could be construed as it's, they're not doing it too. And I just want to make it clear that I fall victim to this stuff just as much as anybody else does. Yeah. I, I just was listening to something the other day where they were talking about like one of, one of the biases that people have is like the immunity to bias bias or something like that it's like the more you learn about biases and these like heuristics and these instincts that you have the more you start to believe that like you are not subject to them and so it's like like initially like your awareness actually helps you and then it starts to do the, have the opposite effect because you you know you learn about it and you think well just because I know that I have a negativity bias or I have an urgency you know an instinct to think that things are urgent yeah. means that I'm immune to this and I, I think that that's a really great point that you bring out there because you know I I would certainly hope that no one listening to us talk would get the sense that we believe that I you know we're any better than the people i'm using you know quotes air quotes here than the people that we keep referring to when we say people 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 it's you know i'm people too and uh, i certainly can identify with almost every one of these instincts in this book <laughs> but that's what that's where the value is when you read it right yeah. when you look at it and you say yes i get this because i've either experienced it directly i could think of an example where i've experienced yeah. it directly it's like comedy it, it is like comedy it's exactly it's like it's true that's why you know they say you know what they say like all jokes have an element of truth to them or, or you know comedians all you know, funny jokes all funny jokes <laughs> anyway right um there's actually one last there's one last instinct that he talks about in the book and it's the urgency instinct yeah which is another one that again it's like we clearly all do it's people need to do something now like yeah. we need to do this now if we don't do it now it'll it's never gonna get done and i i i you know or it's got to be done now it's got to be done right this minute and and we see this and it's so funny this is part of robert cialdini's research on influence I don't know that work. Yeah, so that influence psychology. And so he basically says urgency is one of the pillars of. And so in the book, Factfulness, you know, Rosling is saying, yeah, you got to watch out for the people that are saying, do this right now. Do because they're trying to influence you because it creates a ticker and a time. And, you know, they're creating urgency. Whereas a lot of people that read Cialdini's work will take that tool and they'll use it with good intent or bad intent to create urgency 
in your life to get you to do things. Yeah. And he's saying, watch out for that urgency. Yeah. So it's the other side. So when I was reading it, it was funny for me to see because I'm like, I know people who certainly coach up urgency. I've probably done it in, in my life at some point, hopefully with better intent. I know for a fact with better intent. But what he's saying is, if you really want to understand, watch out for people that are trying to get you to do things right now, yeah, right this minute. Because not only do they know what they're doing, but it has a cycle. There's a psychological effect that happens inside of you that you actually want to do it. Yeah, and urgency is frequently combined with fear. Your your fear instinct, you know, starts to get triggered, and and it's going to lead you to not think critically and probably make a bad decision. You know, so I don't, you know in my role at the you know school where I work as the assistant principal, right? I deal with a lot of situations, like random stuff that happens during a day, you know, with adults and with kids and, you know, just uh, like any number of weird things. And, and somebody had told me at one time, and it was really great piece of advice. And they were like, you know, almost nothing that you deal with yeah. is so urgent that you can't take some time to try to get more information and if you're feeling agitated or whatever about, you know, to take some time to kind of get back to a cooler state, think about it, access some information, access some resources, and then make a decision. So like outside of, you know, people, you know, kids are punching each other and obviously, you know, you got to get them apart and you got to separate them. But even once you have them separated, like you don't have to make any decisions right away. You make sure everybody's safe and then you go, yeah, okay, this is, I'm all, amped up right now because I just broke up a fight and now I got to calm down. I got to think, okay, what did I do last time? What do I know about these, this situation? What do, what, what have we done before? Right. And you know, very few of us are like getting the news that like, Hey, look, uh, the nukes are flying over the Atlantic right now. We think you got to make a decision in four minutes, whether or not to push the button. I mean, like to me, that's probably the most urgent decision that a human could ever possibly make. But you know what? Almost none of us are ever going to be in yeah. that situation. And and you're almost never in that situation. And so, like, slow down. Yeah, no. I think one of my favorite things, uh, sayings, quotes, I think it's John Maxwell. Nothing is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it. Nothing is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it. So whatever you're thinking about, right in this moment, it feels way more important than it actually is. Yeah. Ten minutes later... It's not going to be as important as you as it was 10 minutes earlier. Yeah. So stop, slow down, and think about it. I love that line. I always, I always think about That's it. That's a great line. It's a really great line. So we went through all the instincts. I don't know if there's you know any lasting takeaways, quotes, uh, so I things a, you want to touch on before yeah, we wrap up. I mean, I have a couple of you know just kind of kind of things. Then you know one of my big takeaways, um, and this is something that. I think I, I've been thinking about for a long time, but this book hits it pretty well, which is that our brain is a product of evolution, right? And many of the built-in heuristics that were once adaptive easily lead us astray in today's world, right? And so I actually thought about something really funny when I was when I was thinking about this concept, which is that I don't know. You remember, you're a Seinfeld fan. So I love Seinfeld. You, you know, the episode of Seinfeld where George decides he's going to do the opposite 
Oh yeah. It's like, and that's what I started thinking about. I was like, wait a minute. In most situations, a lot of our intuitions are actually wrong. So it's like, maybe we should just do the opposite like George. And I don't know that that's definitely true, but it, I thought it was funny. And I thought it was actually like somewhat insightful when you think about like, geez, you know, in any situation I find myself, I really, really need to think about why am I thinking about this in this way? You know, yeah. like I have a gut feeling about this. Well, where's that coming from? And is it right? You know, like, is there a better way to think about this? And so I feel like just knowing that like your brain has this stuff that it just does. You are not conscious that it's happening, right? It's happening below the level of consciousness. Be aware that it can lead you in a direction that is wrong. And at one time it might've really helped you survive, which is why it's still there in your brain. But now it might not be doing you so much good. You know, don't eat that extra giant donut because you're going to get more food in four hours, you know? Yeah, no, totally. I, I, I think that's a great, uh, yeah. I mean, I think some of the biggest pivot points in my life, uh, as a learner happened when I started reading more cognitive psychology and more about the stuff that was happening, the biases that we experience and the stuff that's happening on that subconscious level. I think, you know, when I started seeing that stuff or reading that stuff, things really started to change for me internally. Not that I wasn't affected by them, as we already talked about. Clearly I was, or clearly I am. But it just, understanding that that psychology has changed a lot in, in, in my life. And, you know, I, for me, I think, you know, my lasting takeaway with this book, and it's not to be repetitive, and it's, you know, you can't make decisions about the future. You can't make decisions about anything unless you have a fact-based worldview, unless you clearly understand the situation. You can't make good decisions. You could, I was going to, or you might you, make lucky decisions. You could make lucky decisions. It could turn out with good outcomes, but to properly make any decision in your life, what diet to start, what book to read, what car to buy, Start with the facts. Yeah. And some are more consequential, obviously, some than others. Some are more consequential but than others. But for the others. big ones, you definitely want to take some time and figure. What, well, you, know, yeah. you, you know, what do we know? What do we don't know? What, what are the actual things that yeah. we need to, to, you know, and not look at things with rose-colored glasses and say, this is the situation as it exists today. Whether we want to accept it or not accept it, there's things that are concrete facts. You know, this window sill is white. That's it. There's no other way that I can't tell you it's any other. It's white, you know, and then and then you move forward from there. And that happens on a macro level or a micro level. And for me, that's just the big message here. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with everything that you just said. Um, you know, my other my other big takeaway was just that there, there are these dramatic instincts. We have this overdramatic worldview. Here are some of the things that lead to that. The world is not actually bad and getting worse, although we perceive it to be that way because of these dramatic instincts that we have. And even though they're very powerful, they can be countered. And there's some strategies that we can use, right? And so we need to be humble, right? And this was something that we talked about last time. We need to be aware of how our instincts lead us astray. We need to be realistic about the extent of our knowledge, happy to say I don't know, prepared to change our opinions in the face of new facts, right? We need to be curious. We need to seek and be open to new information. We need to be willing to embrace facts that don't fit our worldview. Let our mistakes trigger curiosity. We have to constantly update and upgrade our knowledge as the world keeps changing. I mean, 
That yeah. was my major takeaway, you know, at the end of this book. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of my favorite things to say right now, literally right now, is like, I mean, in this time period of my <laughs> life, is uh, strong convictions, weekly health. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, don't be afraid to make bold. That's a munger, right? I, a mungerism? I, I, it might be. I, 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 I actually looked for the original source the yeah. other day and all I kept finding was those four words together yeah. and I couldn't find the original, yeah. uh, but it might be. And, um, I just love that. I mean, be bold enough to make the strong convictions, but hold them weekly. Yeah. You know, let be be ready to change your mind. Be ready. To, when you have new, the luxury. New evidence comes to you light. You have right? the luxury to be able to change your mind. Why do you give that up so easily? Yeah. Why do you give it up so easily by saying, I am this, I am that, and then digging in and then never detracting off that yeah. at all and saying to yourself, I am this, I believe this at all costs. Right. You have the luxury. No one's holding the gun to your head saying you have to do something. Yeah. Use that to your advantage. And yeah. it's like- so be bold enough to make those convictions yeah. and then hold them weakly enough to know yeah. that new information can come into yeah, the picture yeah, yeah. at any time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I kind of, you know, I think I've said everything that I have to in regards to this book. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm Yeah, good. no, I mean, I feel like we covered it pretty well. I think that the book is certainly useful. Yeah. Right? I think it really provides a great framework uh, or a mental model for helping you to think more clearly about the world. So if, if that's something that you're interested in, if you're interested in learning and you're interested in growth, then this is a great book. Um, it's not, it doesn't take that long to read. It reads real easy, right? Yep. Would you agree? I agree. Um, you know, a couple of hours, you could probably, you know, bang through the whole thing. I mean, you know, depending on what you want to take away, it's got great. At if you're end, taking notes the whole way through, it'll take you longer. Yeah. But if you're not doing that, then. But the other thing ahead. that's great about it is it has at the end of each chapter, there's a great little summary that goes over what was that instinct that was covered in that chapter? What does it mean? And then what are the, you know, four or five things you want to pay attention to? when you're encountering this type of situation. And of course, right. there's plenty of data. The book is very data rich with charts, yep. graphs that prove, you know, backing all of his points. It's not a case study, logic-based book, I would say. It's, the foundation is primarily data. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and look, I, I think that there's pluses and minuses to, to that, but won't get into that now. And it's not, I don't think that there's anything wrong to base it off of data. But what I'm saying is, there's a difference between when people use just case studies or just logic right. versus data rich. So right. it's very data rich. I think after reading this though, honestly, I think I'm going to start considering myself a possibilist. <laughs> that's a that's a good one. Someone who neither hopes without reason or fears without reason. Someone who constantly resists an overdramatic worldview. That's that's my goal, I think. I uh, think it's a I think it's a noble one. I want to do that. I can probably join that movement. <laughs> nice. Um so with that being said, I think it's time we announce the uh, March 2019 book of the month. Sounds good. So in case you didn't read along, by all means, don't not read Factfulness. But <laughs> To uh, use the double negative. To use the double negative. We're kind of going to make a, a pivot point here. Go take a left or a right, whatever direction uh, you prefer. <laughs> We're moving off of the global perspective. We're going to dial it into the individual perspective, the human perspective, something that is probably the single human perspective. The single human perspective. <laughs> we're going more into your comfort zone. More here, into right? my comfort zone, exactly. Uh, and we're going to be reading Barking Up the Wrong Tree 
the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong by Eric Barker, who Eric Barker, by the way, has a blog of the same name, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And, you know, he's been blogging for 10 years since maybe 2009. Uh, Very well-respected writer. I've been, you know, looking forward to reading this book for a while. It's been on my to-read list for, since it's come out in 2017. So I'm excited. Oh, it's been out that long? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, it came out in 2017. I wasn't aware of the book until last Sunday. Yeah, when I, when, I, when I brought it up during Sunday dinner. But yeah, so if anyone wants to read along, go pick up Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and that's where we're headed. Sounds great. Darren, this has been great. Yeah. All right. See you next week. Yeah. Or Sunday, actually. I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow. We'll have a Sunday dinner. <laughs> Bye. Wait, before you go, I used to ask people to rate and review the podcast because it helps people find the show and it helps the show in general. But what I realized was this was kind of self-serving. And sure, I put a lot of work in the podcast and I care a lot about it. But honestly, I don't really care if you rate it or review it. Although I'd be honored if you did. What I truly care about is if you actually do like it. So you're inspired by it or you tune back in and you're excited to listen to the episodes that you share it with somebody else. Tell a friend, family member, or a colleague. This happens to be a much straighter line to helping the show and helping other people find the show. But that's all I've got. I promise my rant is over now. Thank you so much for listening and your ongoing support.